Last week we began a new series, working through the book of Malachi. And since it was the first message of the series, I also gave an overview and some background on the book. There are a few things that we really need to understand about Malachi, generally speaking. So in case you were not here, let me review. First, one of the neatest aspects of Malachi is that virtually the entire book is placed within quotation marks. And the person being quoted is God. Out of 55 total verses in this short book, as many as 47 have God as the speaker. This is the reason I've titled the series, God Says. As mentioned last week, we believe the entire Bible is inspired and inerrant. However, there's something particularly powerful about, what, about words that are given to us as a direct quotations from the Lord. In this series, we're going to see literally what God says about several key topics. Second, we want to keep in mind that this word from the Lord, though addressed to Israel, is equally applicable to the church of today. Because all those who have accepted Christ have become spiritual Israel. Whether the background be Jew or Gentile, as the New Testament teaches clearly in Christ, there's no longer distinction. At least in terms of spiritual uh, identity. We are the chosen ones of God just as they were. Therefore, we can receive this prophetic word written to Israel as a personal message from God to us. Besides this, we can also be assured that neither God nor his opinion on things has changed since this was written. This is the reason the entire word of God is timeless and his truth is always relevant. As we know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired and profitable for training in righteousness. Third, We should keep in mind that the major theme of this book is a call to revival. The central verse, chapter 3, verse 7, is return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. This is what God wanted to say then, and I believe it is what God wants to say now. This call to return to the Lord is relevant for us in one way or another, all of us, every single person in this room. For some, this return may be a matter of the heart, such as a need for more prayer in your life. For others, this return may involve repentance from some particular sin. Regardless, most of us, if not all of us, will need to return to the Lord in some way. God's powerful call to revival begins with the very first thing he says. In verse 2, God says, I have loved you. Those are the words we heard God say to us last week. I have loved you. These words are designed to spark in us a desire to return to the Lord. And as we will see today, these are also the very words from God that can rectify our worship practices. God says, remember my love. And then based on that love, rectify your worship. We'll dig into this new challenge from the Lord momentarily. But before we do, also as a part of this series, we're going to review our Old Testament history. It's very important that we read the Bible in light of what was going on at the time. And so we're going to walk through and outline every week during this series, wherein you will hopefully begin to fill in blanks with me verbally, and this along with the use of hand signals will help us remember. Since Malachi is the final book in the Old Testament, both in terms of placement and in terms of chronology, it's a good time for us to make sure we have the flow of God's history in mind. 
Now, I know this may be a little bit uncomfortable for some of you, but frankly, we are the church, and it won't hurt us to do something together besides sitting and listening or sleeping. So when I pause, please try to verbally fill in the blank, and as much as you can, join me with the hand signals. We're going to get better and better at this throughout the series, as I'm sure most of you know, both verbalizing and getting your body involved are helpful with learning and particularly with memory. Don't be embarrassed if you don't know the answers, but just fill in the blanks when you can. When I pause, that's your, that's your chance, okay, as I go along. So here we go. I'm going to go a little slower this week to get more people on board. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us about, there you go, creation. Chapter 3, the temptation, think about the serpent. The temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Okay, the first murder. Chapter 5, genealogies. Kind of boring. Chapter 6, 7, 8, Noah and the... Oh, we can all get that one, right? Chapter 9, Noah after the... Okay, the rainbow. No, after the flood. Chapter 10, 10, again, genealogies. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham. We've got to do that one again. Chapter 11 is the call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and he spoke to him. God said, go into a land that I will show you and I will make you a great and mighty nation and I will make your name great. So Abraham, remember this one, packed his bags, and he and his family went up around the Fertile Crescent. You learned that in school, right? They went up around the Fertile Crescent. They came up to a town called Haran, which was barren. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? Ever been there? Lord, what am I doing here? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet. So God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the, we can all get that one. They moved into the promised land, but Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a problem because 30 more years had passed. They still hadn't had any children, and now they're getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave a son to Abraham and Sarah, who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel. So Jacob, aka Israel, had how many sons? Twelve. Ten fingers, two earlobes. Twelve sons. The second youngest son's name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit sold him into bondage, and sent him down to Egypt for another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After, the Pharaoh, after that Pharaoh died, and then Joseph died. So there was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family, which had become very large at this time. So he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive, and the people began to cry out to God saying, God, get us out of this mess. 
Can we do that one together? Have you ever, have, is anybody else, does that, like, right now, anybody? Let's say it together. Here we go. God, get us out of this mess. Consider that a prayer, Lord. Thank you. So, God called a man named Moses and told him to go to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show his power, and through Moses, he unleashed how many plagues? Ten plagues. He unleashed ten plagues. Where am I? Scrolled too far. On the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take any more. And the last time Moses said, what did he say? Let my people go. Pharaoh said, okay. So Moses, kind of like packing the bags, but Moses did what? He gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea and on up to Mount Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses later sent 12 spies into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. Ten spies came back and said, no go. But two spies said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the ten spies, and as a group they said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount Nebo. Got it? I'm getting too old for that. That's hard. Where Moses died and a new leader was selected, we'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two spies who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River, um, and then they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. Let's try that phrase again. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River, and they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. And Josh, after Joshua died, there were seven social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges, God, give us a king. The first king was Saul. The second king was David. And the third king was Solomon. They ruled the United Kingdom. After Solomon, though, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. But keep in mind that all of it together was still sometimes called Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was? Good one. That's a tough one. Samaria. And the capital of the southern kingdom was? Jerusalem. There were ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. And there were how many good kings in the south? Eight. In 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom, Israel. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. Let's try that part. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than a hundred years later, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came over to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for 
70 years. 70 years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king sent three leaders back to help reestablish Judah. Their names were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the temple. That was Zerubbabel. Reestablished communication with God. That was Ezra. And they rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi. And he shared his word of the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst on the scene shouting about Jesus Christ saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Good job. You just covered the entire Old Testament in a nutshell. Let's get into today's text. Malachi verses 5 through 14. And understand that this comes after all of the history we just covered. And that is all, the, all that's left, all, after all that has happened, the exile, everything, all, all, northern tribes are gone, all, all that's left is a remnant of people, mostly those living in Jerusalem, mostly leaders. But even as a remnant of leaders, they still are not getting it right. Again, the overarching theme of our text for today is a call to rectify our worship. Originally, I was going to use the word revitalize to speak of our worship, uh, what needs to happen. But more, the more I thought about it, the more I realized um, rectify is the right word. Make no mistake, even you and me right here at Go Church today, or at least many of us, absolutely need to rectify our worship. According to Webster's Dictionary, rectify means this. Number one, to set right, remedy. Two, to purify. Three, to correct by removing errors, adjust. Four, to make direct, as in rectifying from AC to DC, alternating to direct current. Every word of this definition applies to what needs to happen with our worship. I'll let you ponder how the fourth option, changing from alternating to direct current, might apply, but a hint is that through Christ we have a direct line to God, and it's always on, always available, if we will only plug in. Today in our text, we will hear God say to us that we need to set right, remedy, purify, correct, adjust, and make direct our worship. Now, I think that our worship pastor does a great job of leading us in the right direction, and you should see his emails to the band. They're quite extensive each week as he works to train them and teach them and inspire them, and then he works on these kinds of things that we're going to talk about every week. And so I do think we're in a better place than many churches. But having said that, I also know that Pastor Connor would agree that Go Church is not even close to where we want it to be yet in terms of worship. We're not there yet. We absolutely have some rectifying to do. So let's read all our text first, and then we'll break it down into six principles for rectifying our worship. We'll cover three principles today and three next time. But let's read the whole text. This is what God says from verse 5. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? 
you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, it's not evil. And when you present the lame and sick, it's not evil. Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and then you say, the table of the Lord is to be defiled, and for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and was lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who is a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations." All right, so this is all about rectifying or making right the worship of God in the house of God, meaning the place where we gather, which is a big key to revival, by the way. And remember that these principles come straight out of the mouth of God. He told us how our perspective needs to change in order to rectify our worship. Let's see what God says. First of all, we need to understand, this is number one, that worship is our response to God's love. This comes from verse 5. Verse 5, your eyes will see it, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Worship is our response to God's love. First, let me establish that we're talking about <clears throat> worship in this verse. And in this passage, we see this is in the word magnified. To magnify is to literally make bigger, to make great. And in context, the idea here is to make great the name of God or to bring glory to Him by declaring His greatness in such a way that it increases His fame and His honor, particularly to people who do not currently believe. This is about worship that brings increased glory to God in the world. So for today, understand that to magnify God is to worship Him and to worship God is to magnify Him, to lift Him up, to glorify Him, to exalt Him, to proclaim His worth. These phrases are all about worship. Also notice that God is talking to the people in the plural. And so, as we will see in the following verses, He is clearly speaking of corporate worship, not private worship. In this passage, God is talking about what happens when His people come together as a group and worship Him together. Well, this is so important for modern Christians to hear and understand. This is a huge part of why we gather for church, folks. And frankly, this is the main reason that online church can never even come close to being an adequate substitute for the actual physical assembly of God's people. Almost the entire book of Malachi is really about how we worship together. Now let's dig into this text, and first we should ask ourselves, what is God referring back to when He says, your eyes will see it, and you will say, the Lord be magnified. Our eyes will see what? 
Remember from last time how this passage begins in verse 2. God says, I have loved you. I hope those words have stayed with you throughout this week as they have stayed with me. God spoke these words to us last Sunday. Verse 5 is pointing back to these words and also to the illustration God had used in order to communicate just exactly how His love had been manifested to them in a very special and exclusive kind of way. Taking His special love for us to heart, our response is to worship Him authentically. And that is the point of verse 5. God says, you will see it. That is, you will more fully comprehend my love covenant relationship with you. And then you will say, the Lord be magnified. Hear this, worship is a response to God's love. You cannot truly grasp the love God has for you. Love that was manifested on the cross of Christ and then show up to a worship service with no heart to actually worship. And so the following is a simple and true statement. If your worship is empty, you need a fresh revelation of God's special love for you. Someone might sincerely ask, how do I get a fresh revelation of God's love? Well, I've been working on that and preaching these messages so far, but to be more specific, you need to focus on the cross. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love for you. First, you need to show up and participate in a church where you can hear the preaching of the cross and where you can sing the songs and hymns of the cross and where you can be reminded in various ways of the cross and to remember that Jesus knew you by name even as he died on the cross for you. That's probably the quickest and most poignant way to receive a fresh revelation of the love God has for you, which again will lead you to magnify him in your worship. Let's spend a little bit more time focusing on the practical application of this principle that worship is our response to the love of God. I want to get very real with you and ask a question. What is your problem? (laughs) When it comes to worship, what is your problem? Often as a preacher, I'll talk about our problems, right? I mean, it's more humble to say it that way. I certainly do have plenty of problems. But today, I want you to really hear this question, and if you are offended, so be it. What is your problem when it comes to worship? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't really get into worship all that much. Maybe you didn't realize it was obvious. (laughs) But yeah, it it, it kind of is. (laughs) Worship leaders know what I'm talking about. Why is your worship often anemic? Why do you get distracted? Why do you sometimes, if not most of the time, not really worship? And the answer is that most of the time you are not all that taken up with the love of God. Were you to have a moment in which you truly comprehended a sliver of the love God has for you. I believe your worship would become passionate and powerful. If we as a church really heard God, not the preacher, not even Malachi, but God say, I have loved you. I don't think our worship would be quite so restrained. I'm afraid that on a given Sunday, most of us do not grasp the love of God in a real way, even though we are given that opportunity every week. 
This is why we need revival. Worship is a response to the love of God, but if we're not somehow scalded by the white-hot intensity of that love, we do not react with appropriate worship. And let me hasten to say, this may not manifest for you in raising your hands or shouting hallelujah or even in singing your guts out. I mean, I'm not going to judge you on the externals, okay? But God will judge you on your heart. He will. So get real. Is your heart as engaged as it should be when we worship? Now, do you know why we're not typically taken up with the love of God in a way that would rectify our worship? The answer is idolatry. Our hearts are designed to be receptors, and receptors can only receive so much. They can receive the love of God or they can receive other things. With much repetition and practice, we have shaped our hearts to receive pleasure from our idols rather than from God. What is it that excites you? What is it that you look forward to, to, to buying or to doing or to seeing? For some, this may be a bona fide addiction. For others, it's simply the thing you look forward to and think about the most. And I'm not saying you should never find pleasure in other things or have any fun in your life. But what do you call it if you find more meaning and pleasure and fulfillment in something more than God? Idolatry. And my point is not, oh, feel guilty, you're an idolater. My point is that sometimes we need to turn down the noise and the clamor of other things so that we can remember the love of God in a way that inspires our worship. Some of us need our hearts to be reshaped, and to do that, we will need to stop molding our hearts around lesser things. Many Christians won't even make the commitment to do this for an hour on each and every Sunday, right? And some of the rest of us spend the whole time we're here thinking about what we'll be doing after we leave. We need to make more room in our hearts to receive God's love so that we can worship Him as we should. Do you know that our hearts can be trained? Did you know that? You can train your heart to desire more television, or you can train your heart to desire more of God. What do you always do when you get home from work? What do you do on the weekends? What do you look forward to the most? What do you do right before bed? What do you stay up doing? I'm not necessarily saying stop doing those things unless they are sinful. What I am saying is that maybe you're not giving God a chance to get a hold of your heart. Man, there's no room. Seek him and you will find him. Spend time alone in his word and in prayer. And then don't skip your chance to worship him with your church family on Sundays. Maybe even fast from some of these other things once in a while in order to make room in your heart for his love. Listen, go church, church family, my people. (laughs) If our worship is going to be rectified and it needs to be, then it's going to become a response to the love of God. Most of our music is designed to remind us of God's great love, but we easily become callous to those words or don't even think about what we're singing, and we fail to be impacted as we should. Too often we do not apply ourselves to receiving the love of God, and therefore our worship becomes weak and powerless. The key is hearing God say, hearing God say, I have loved you. It's the point of verse 5. When we see how special God's love is for us, we will respond by magnifying His name in a way that overflows to the world. More on that part next week. 
Let's talk about the second principle found in our text. If we're to see our worship rectified, we need to understand that worship is informed by the identity of God. Worship is informed by the identity of God. Moving on into verse 6, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. And then I want us to look ahead to the end of the passage, the second half of verse 14, where God says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Worship is a response to God's love, as we covered, and I think that really speaks to the emotional piece of this. But worship is also informed by who God is, meaning that His identity guides our worship and helps us know what type of response is appropriate. This speaks more to the mental portion of worship, which is equally important. Remember, the Bible tells us to worship the Lord with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. So let's get into the specifics from our text. Obviously, if we were to do a study of the whole of Scripture, we could come up with a very long list of words or titles used to define the identity of God. However, for today, we will limit ourselves to the three titles God uses for Himself right here in this passage. First of all, God reminds the people that He is Father. Now, even within the idea that God is our Father, there are many different ways for our worship to be informed. But in this case, the response God is looking for is honor. As he says in verse 6, if I'm your father, then where is my honor? So what does God mean by honor? According to the New Testament commentary on Malachi, the Hebrew word, uh, New American commentary, the Hebrew word translated as honor, kabod, in this context means the recognition of God's worth with acts of deference or praise i.e. the Lord's worth deserves praise and worship. So again, we are undoubtedly talking about worship in this passage. But what is the link here between God's fatherhood and this word translated as honor? Obviously, our earthly fathers are worthy of honor, but not worship. So we have to keep in mind that the meaning here is driven by the fact that God is our heavenly father. He is our creator and the sustainer of our very existence. As it says in Revelation 4.11, He's worthy of our worship because He created all things, and by His will they exist and were created. We're here because God wants us to be here. We exist because He made us. And so the kind of honor God deserves is related to the fact that in many ways He is the Father of all created things, including ourselves. This aspect of the identity of God also points back again to His love. The special love of a father for a son or daughter. Not everybody's my son or daughter. I got a special love for my son or daughter. I guarantee you that. God has a special love for those who are his sons and his daughters. Because of that, he's worthy of a special kind of honor. The second term God uses to identify himself in order to rectify our worship is master. Master. Isn't it interesting? Father and master. Our our relationship with God is kind of complex, isn't it? It's complex and it's wonderful that he would even care to have a relationship with us. Here God is calling for respect. He says, if I'm your master, where's my respect? Included in this word is the idea of authority. The kind of authority that means there'll be repercussions. 
if you do not fall in line, especially since in this case we're talking about the highest authority in existence, or that is the master of all masters. It's interesting that God says, if I am your master. God does not choose to say, since I am your master, you better respect me. He could have said it that way, but he didn't. I think this is because true worship cannot be forced or manipulated. God is saying, your worship proves how you really think about me, and it shows that you do not respect me as your master, no matter what you say. God is also implying that if they were to truly embrace him as the master he actually is, then their worship would automatically be corrected and marked by the respect he deserves. And then in verse 14, God reminds them that he is king in the ultimate sense. The expected result of this information is fear in the sense of allegiance and loyalty that is 100% required or else. Because God says, for I am a great king and my name is feared among the nations. One point God is making is that since he is feared among the nations, it's ironic that he's not so feared or revered among those who should know him best as king. The context here comes after he's just accused them of showing more reverence to their earthly governors than they have shown him. They would never have brought blemished animals to their governor, but they were bringing them to God. And it's ironic that in this earthly parallel, God brings up how they treat their governors, not even their king. They don't even have access to the Persian king at this time, but only the local governors. And they're required to provide for these governors or else. They do so because of fear of what will happen if they do not. Meanwhile, they continue to bring their leftovers to the king of the universe, as if he were of less importance than these small-time governors. Don't get me started about governors, by the way. (laughs) Moving on. The idea is that (laughs) The identity of God informs our worship. When we truly understand His eternal kingship, authentic worship will follow. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Only one king is the king. He's the ruler of all rulers. He's in control. He's the ultimate definition of royalty. And He's the only reason any earthly authority has meaning or deserves respect. From the eternal king, Jesus Christ, all earthly rulers are granted their tiny slice of power for every long, however long he sees fit. Any reverence they are due is because they rule under his authority. That's clear in several passages of scripture. And yet sometimes we show more reverence for worldly leaders than for God. By the way, the Bible is clear that when a true dichotomy exists, we must follow God rather than men. When a true dichotomy exists, we must follow God rather than men. The point is that God is our ultimate king. And our worship should be informed by our ultimate allegiance to him. As mentioned, we could spend months talking about all the different ways that the identity of God is described in Scripture. And all of those descriptions or titles inform our worship. But the take-home point is this. We worship God best when we remember who he is. So how do you and I apply this? Be intentional. Fight to see through the fog of this earth and peer into the heavenly brilliance of God. We ought to be doing that every Sunday morning. 
visualize the worship going on in heaven 24 hours a day. Unfortunately, we can only see as through a smoky piece of glass from this side of eternity, which makes this a challenge. But with effort, if you will focus your spiritual eyes, you can begin to see God for who He is. And that is when you will truly worship. Remember Isaiah, the earlier prophet, who said, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. And then he went on to describe the throne room of the king and how it was that when he saw the Lord, he worshiped like never before. For homework, you can check that out later in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord, his worship was instantly rectified. Our worship needs to be regularly informed by the identity of God. Today, we have remembered his father, as master and as king, your worship can be made right, even if you spend time meditating on just those three facets of the identity of God. We worship God best when we remember who He is. Now third, the third worship rectifying principle from our text is this, half-hearted worship is offensive to God. This really is the primary message of the passage, and it's what most of the text addresses. What I'm going to do on this point is simply to walk through the the rest of this passage, pausing to make some observations and explanations along the way, picking it up from the second half of verse 6. Is this going to be on the screen, I hope? Yes, good. So you can follow along. And if I'm a master, it's God speaking, if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. Let's pause here. And establish first that while the original audience consists of the priests who oversaw the sacrificial worship system in the second temple, that does not absolve any of us from taking this to heart. As most of you know, in the new covenant, we are all priests to our God. Because of Jesus, we are all priests. We no longer need earthly go-betweens because our mediary and high priest is now Christ. For more on that, just read the book of Hebrews. Certainly those of us in leadership can take extra care to listen here. Okay, he's talking to leaders, so if I'm in leadership, I'm going to really pay attention. But regardless, the priests were not the only ones despising God or His name since the people were the ones bringing these pathetic offerings. And so while the priests should have corrected them, the people were also guilty for their heartless worship. Going on. But you say, how have we despised your name? So again, we have this drama where God says something and then anticipates a cynical response from the people, which he then answers patiently. God answers, verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. So God's quick answer is, you've despised or dishonored my name by presenting defiled food on my altar. This is a reference to animal sacrifices that they were not doing right. But more than that, as we will see, the problem was their heart in trying to get by with as little as possible. And now God has the people asking yet another cynical question. But you say, how have we defiled you? And God answers again. In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. We actually sing about the table of the Lord in one of our songs. The table of the Lord means the worship service, the place of worship, that that gathering place for the people and the worship that's going on, corporate worship. That's what table of the Lord is talking about. The table of the Lord is to be despised. We need to pause and notice the way God puts these words together. He says, you despise my name and defile, with defiled worship. And then he says, you defile me by saying that my table 
is despised. This table is the service of worship. So they basically ruin the worship service by their poor offerings and then criticize the worship service for being lame. They make it lame and then they criticize it for being lame. It's a waste of their precious time, they say. We disdainfully snip at it, at one point he says. Are you seeing how this applies, though, to us or can? It's kind of like if um, a congregation refuses to engage their hearts in worship and then criticizes the music leader for not making worship more meaningful. Or maybe it's like complaining about the song selection or the volume level or something like that instead of being thankful for the opportunity to engage your heart in worship. More importantly, we need to see the relationship between our acts of worship and how we view God, which in turn further degrades our worship like a vicious cycle. When our worship is defiled or less than best, we show that we actually despise God. And then, because God has been defiled or downgraded in our minds, we begin to despise the acts of worship as well. Why do I even need to go? What's the point of church? We further defile His name. Do you see how God reversed the words the second time in our text? Look at it there. The first time it was defiled worship equals despising God. And then the second time it was despising worship equals defiling God. This play on words reinforces the point that how we worship or even how we think about worship really matters. You need to realize that you can despise God and you can defile God by the way you worship. And even by how you think about the tools we are using, for them the table, the sacrifices, whatever it was, but for us whatever it is, that we can actually defile and degrade God by how we think about the tools He's given us for worship. I don't know how many times I've heard people say online and stuff, I don't really care about the music. Um, Read your Bible. The phrase sing to God appears 92 times in the verse of Psalms. It's a command, sing to God. Verse 8, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? It's talking about blemished animals that were not worth anything at the market. They would, have, uh, not, they would have wanted to remove from breeding. But don't miss the application that if we offer God inappropriate, half-hearted, less than sacrificial worship, God considers it to be not only ineffective or empty, but actually evil. That's what he calls it. Evil. Going on. Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? It kind of gets confusing in the drama here. God's adding to the drama by using indirect speech, speaking of himself with sarcasm, sarcasm, as if he were the people. Going on, with such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Hopefully from walking through that text, you can see how true this principle is that half-hearted worship or less than best worship is offensive to God. In fact, it's considered useless by Him, and more than that, it is evil. That's what He says. God has the nerve to say of our worship, I would rather you shut up and go home than to keep offering me less than your best in worship. God says, if you're going to bring me your leftovers, just go home. Maybe we really do need to rectify our worship. Do you cheer more for sports teams than you do for God? 
Do you have to drag yourself into this place where we gather for worship on Sundays as if it were not the greatest privilege on earth? Do you bring the leftovers of your attention, the leftovers of your finances, the leftovers of your love and praise, the leftovers of your heart and mind? Do you sing the songs from your heart? Do you listen and pray and hear what God has to say? Do you come with great anticipation and joy to meet with God and His people? Or would you rather be playing video games or watching football or hunting or fishing or shopping or sleeping? Look back at the beginning of this passage. God says these half-hearted, disobedient worshipers are both despising Him and defiling Him. Wow. Well, now, wait a minute, Pastor. At least they were showing up, right? I mean, at least they were trying to worship. It's better than most people. They could have not come at all. They could have stayed home and watched TV. Maybe they didn't bring their best animals to the altar, the unblemished firstborn males as God had commanded, but at least they brought something, right? Wrong. 100% wrong. Here's the lesson. Offering anything less than best in worship is to despise and defile God. That might be the thesis of this whole, this whole passage. Offering anything less than best in worship is to despise and defile God. Why? Because your offering shows how you really feel about the one receiving it. Do you really honor God as Heavenly Father, respect Him as Master, and fear Him as King? Have you grasped the love of God has shown for you in Christ on the cross? Really? Is your worship worthy of who He is and what He's done for you? Or does your offering actually despise and defile His name? God says, I will not accept such an offering because it is evil and useless. And I would prefer you lock the doors of the building and never come back until you're willing to rectify, that is, make right, your hearts and actions in worship. Maybe somebody's thinking, I just don't know how to worship like I should. You can't make yourself feel something you don't feel, right? You don't know how to get excited or get your heart to, to praise God as He deserves. Well, let me point you back to principles number one and two. One, you grow in worship when you let it be a response to the love of God. And two, you grow in worship when your worship is constantly informed by the identity of of God. Comprehension creates change. And beyond those principles, my friend, you have to try. You have to try. Worship doesn't just happen. You have to decide to engage yourself in the fear of God. You hearing me today? Get your heart engaged in worship. Wake up. Work at this. God is worth your best. And in fact, He's worth everything you have. Some of you have wanted to ask me why I often raise my hands in worship. Haven't you? Maybe you even secretly think this can be a distraction. Maybe you think this makes me one of them charismatics. Something like that. Something you don't understand. My last church, one person thought this was a southern thing. 
actually accused me of trying to turn the church more southern. <laughs> For the record, I am not from the south. I'm from the Midwest. Also, for the record, in my experience, many places in the Midwest or the South, ain't nobody raising their hands. I remember when I thought raising hands was weird. Well, let me just answer your question. I raise my hands in worship for two reasons. One, it is absolutely a biblical way to worship God, mentioned multiple times in both the Old and the New Testament. Two, Raising my hands simply helps me engage more fully in worship. That's really the bottom line. Raising my hands helps me get into it. It's a tool that helps me actually worship. Now, if this tool doesn't help you, no problem. Don't do it. But it does help me. So I'm going to keep doing it. If it's all the same to you. What else helps me? Most of the time, my eyes are closed. What about the words? Well, I've kind of learned a lot of them over time. Most songs have at least some repetition, and you'd be surprised what you can remember if you just close your eyes and sing the parts you know. Conversely, I've seen people reading every single word on the screen, even during a song that's the same three words over and over. I've seen people reading the word, hallelujah, hallelujah. Like, like if that word wasn't there and if it wasn't broken up into syllables when we're going to change notes, uh, you know, we just have to shut down the whole service. <laughs> I'll never forget back in my early years of ministry, there was a simple praise call, praise song called, I exalt you, I exalt you. And almost the whole thing was just these three words over and over. Um, I exalt you. I really worship through that song. It's vertical. It's vertical. You sing it to God. And even just those three words sung to God from my heart, well, that was powerful for me. But then I remember one day when I was leading that song and I opened my eyes. Do you know where this is going? The whole congregation was just staring at the screen, reading those three words over and over. Actually, that's not true. Back then, we didn't have screens. If a song was new or it wasn't in the hymnal, we put, it, we put the words in the bulletin. And I remember the whole congregation was standing there just staring at those words, I exalt you, I exalt you, I exalt you. Just reading those three words off their bulletin over and over. And I just stopped the song. I stopped the song. And I said, what are you doing? I said, close your eyes and sing this to God. I think I almost lost my job over that. Let me just tell you all, stop reading words during worship and start praying them instead. Close your eyes some of the time. Pray. Don't just recite the words off the screen. I mean, I know sometimes we're learning a new song, but as soon as possible, see if you can sing at least some of the time without looking at the words. Your heart is more important than getting each word right. I'll tell you what else. Sometimes I don't even sing. I sing most of the time, but sometimes I just listen and pray, especially if it's new. And other times I sing my guts out until people are looking over at me like, what are you, you're really loud right now. God is my audience. It's about my heart. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes to engage my heart in worship and not just go through the motion. That's what I'm going to do. All right, we'll cover the rest of our text, the final three principles next time. 
But let's re remember what God has said today. He really is very blunt. God says, your half-hearted worship is evil. It offends me, and I will not accept it. But he also tells us how to rectify the situation. He says instead, remember my love for you. Remember who I am and worship accordingly. These are the things God is saying today. The question is, how will you respond? Would you pray with me? Father, this really is an area where we can grow. I think most or all of us in this room could grow in this area. I just pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives, that we'd make some decisions. We'd tune our hearts to sing your praise. Uh, next week, or even in this last song we'll do at the end, help us find a new place of worship that's more authentic, where we give you worship that's closer to what you deserve. All we can do is our best. Help us to do that. Lord, for those who may be with us today who have never really made a personal decision to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, they just never really, they don't, maybe, maybe somebody here today is like, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't feel like I can do that. That, that, that conviction of not being able to come into the Lord's presence might be the way that you're saying, hey, you need Jesus. You need forgiveness. You need your sins to, your sins have been paid for on the cross, but you need to receive that gift by faith. And so if there's someone here today, Lord, that needs really to be saved, to be born again, to be radically changed from the inside out by faith in Christ as the Savior, I pray that someone might even have that spark of faith right now and turn to Jesus and just cry out and say, I need, I need you. Take my life. Change me. God, for the rest of us, I pray that we would let your word impact us, that it wouldn't return void, that we would, we would be doers of the word, not just hearers. Help us to worship more fully from our hearts going forward. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.